<laughs> we did this last time. The turkeys are coming. Yes, it's November. The long ships are coming. The long ships are coming. Uh, hey everyone is, yeah hello this is dino this is matt this is martin that's right that's your name yeah welcome to the podcast yeah yeah we're back for uh death the history of death metal number two second part of a i don't know how many part yeah. series I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like is it going to be three parts or four parts we will tell you next time. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much information. Yeah, I have to give credit to both you guys because yeah, you guys really held your end of the bargain on this one. Uh, we can't we can't all go party in fucking Honolulu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know. Fuck your couch. Fuck your couch. Uh, wouldn't that be your couch right now? Yeah, it would uh, be. <laughs> do you have a couch in storage? Yeah, do I, I have do. a couch? Yeah, fuck that one. Yeah, yeah, fuck that couch. Okay. <laughs> but so I guess last time we ended basically talking about all of well, we started with Napalm Death and then we moved across the ocean to the US and talked about Morbid Angel, Death, Obituary, slash Executioner. Mm-hmm. Um, all that stuff. Possessed. Autopsy. Yeah. Yep. Massacre. Did we talk about Massacre last A little time? bit. Did we touch on it? They basically I like think we did, yeah. They basically yeah. Like split up. They massacre is like um it's like when electrons are in the wrong place and then they jump jump out right back again. Like it's like we're a band, no we're not. <laughs> massacre. <laughs> no, I mean nothing was more um entertaining than seeing the how many dates they <laughs> started and stopped as a band. <laughs> Dude, it's crazy. Um, repulsion. It's all good stuff though. Yeah. <clears throat> Highly enjoyable. Um, yeah. So we didn't touch on anything from the Swedish scene. No. Yeah, no, not really. And uh, do you want me to... Yeah, start? please. Would you mind starting? Yeah, so... So now we're swimming across the water again. Yeah. Icy cold. Ice cold. <laughs> and this one doesn't contain ice demons. Sorry. Everyone. Unfortunately. So we go to Sweden. Mighty <laughs> um, <laughs> raven die. <laughs> Whoa, easy. Um, it's just water, dude. So, uh, we start our story with Nick Anderson, a young, impressionable kid. I think starts the journey like a lot of us metalheads do. Uh, started somewhere, at least at his age, at the young age of seven in 1979. Would have been better at six. <laughs> in 1666. <laughs> And uh, he started with Kiss and then moved into punk and then um, basically just looked for like the fastest, craziest stuff he could find. Um, And I have this theory that Nick is a very influential person uh, because there's a couple themes. One of them at at Camp uh, Smezbo, uh, where he met his bandmates, Alex Hedlid, uh, Leif Kuzner. Um, 
at his at uh, Nick's age of thirteen in nineteen eighty five, they got to be- together and formed a band. Uh, started as Sons of Satan, changed to Brain Warp in nineteen eighty seven, and basically changed their name every fucking week until they um, they ended on Nihilist in eighty seven, and uh, they they just basically wanted to be super fucking fast. Would listen to all the records in the record store. And if anything wasn't fast enough after two seconds of listening, they would put on the next one. Fuck this. And I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. Like, I don't know about you guys, but like, no. just go through the record store, Rasputin, just put on things and be like, nope, fuck this. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, the three of us yeah. actually you go. got a couple seconds to, to like make me feel, feel the thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny. Next track. Nope. Next track. Nope. Yeah. No, and we would bounce off each other, like, dude, check yeah. this out. And then if the other guy didn't like it, he'd be like, okay, it's shit. Yeah, dude, there was there was a time where we would spend like hours. We'd like go to the record store two or three hours and we'd like eat and then yeah. like we'd all go home with like one or two records and we'd sit and like listen Just to the fucking CDs headbang for hours. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the days. Those were the days. What happened to us? Employment, bills, <laughs> fucking responsibility. relationships. <laughs> Go move out to the forest and just like burn shit and listen to metal. That sounds like uh, okay. To destroy Mother Earth. That sounds a little bit like um, mayhem. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Okay. Um, so Nihilist record their first demo called Premature Autopsy in 1988. Such a great title. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with a vocalist. Noted as Matthias Bostrom, but um, he was noted there, but actually didn't sing. And I feel like this has happened on a couple of previous bands we've talked about, too, where they just, like, try to scramble for a singer, and then they, like, the main guy just ends up singing and be like, okay, well, we'll just have him there, and he'll sing with us live or something, and then they just fucking kick him out. Or he leaves. Who's this guy again? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um uh, they they hire uh, the notable Johnny Headland um, to take up the bass, and Johnny was older than everyone, and I think he kind of found himself almost like an older brother in a way that he would buy all the all the young kids booze, and but also tell them when they're drinking too much. Yeah. So so he was responsible. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and uh, they all got together um, in this underground metalheads uh group which uh god i so in swedish it's balsligen which means shit league and they would all just party in the tunnels at, like after the tunnels the subway shut down they would all just party there and this makes me think al- along with this and the camp that nick was at um I think in some way he's he's like very influential and very much like able to influence a crowd. Like he's charismatic. Very charismatic. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I, I th- this was one of my favorite things I was reading during the research was this idea of like, we're going to go into like the subway tunnels and we're going to find out like where the police aren't. Yeah. And we're going to like, like party and play like really fast metal music and like you know fucking rage and then like the cops come and just like you know everybody's like running and shit it's just just a cool yeah uh, something about it to me feels like so wonderful and like perfect for the for the scene you know 
And there's so many instances where Nick is responsible from other bands' point of view for getting them the heaviest shit and basically stating to people like Morbid Angel, this is the new thing. <laughs> this is this is like the biggest thing to ever happen. Let's do this. <laughs> this and, is a game changer. <laughs> yeah, and everyone fucking does it. And it and it happens on so many in so many different instances. Um yeah, so so basically everyone's partying in uh the tunnels. Um they Nihilist records a three song demo called Only Shred Shed Only Shreds Remain. And uh this is the first record that they do at Sunlight Studios. And this is a notable studio because this is the one that uses the boss DS1 pedal. Mm-hmm. which you hear so much throughout old death metal from yeah. Sweden. It's not just that one either. It's the HM2. Yeah, that one also. Yeah. Which one do we have? HM2. HM2. Yeah. And But the DS1, though, was, I think, in the beginning, like, that's what everybody started using. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and the uh, engineer, Thomas uh, Skogsberg, he put it on the hi-hat. He put it... <laughs> On the guitars, he put it on the vocals, he fucking <laughs> used it on everything. And he's he said he's known as the king of mid-range, but in reality, I think he just jacked all the levels up. And yeah. that's what I think is according to Nick. It was just like, oh yeah, he fucking just plugged it in and fucking turned up everything and said, That's what you oh, do. You're, you're ready. Yeah. Ready to go. Those old boss pedals, you just max everything out. Yeah. And play. And um another instance where I think that uh Nick is very charismatic is when they finally played live uh they're like you you're not even gonna get like a hundred people to fill this place and he's like yeah no yeah i'll, I'll get it and <laughs> he ended up getting 350 people there to show up to a show fucking and awesome. like that's i think one of their first shows like that's fucking, a lot of that's people fucking crazy um and I think that's because like people already kind of had knew who they were from these like subway sort of. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All these gatherings, you know, friends, friends of friends, everyone's super excited. Like, Oh, we get to see the shit live. Like we don't get to listen to it on a shitty stereo and a fucking cold ass. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> like this is the best possible fucking situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's get drunk and watch metal music. Yeah. This is the dream because at this time, like the scene was pushed like in the darkest recesses and they did have to congregate in these unofficial areas. And then it's like, oh, there's a place for us now, you know, even if only for like this short amount of time, like it's going to happen at this location. They're going to play live. Yeah. Like there's a place for us now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, after that, uh, Johnny Hedlund uh, had creative differences with Nihilist and ended up leaving. And I th- I th- think it was kind of funny. Uh, Nick, looking back on it, said that it was basically cowardice. Like, he split up the band so Johnny would leave and then reformed it without Johnny. Like the next day, right? It, like four days later. Yeah. It was just like, bye. Oh, wait, he's not here, guys. Let's start playing again. <laughs> yeah, now that he's gone. Yeah. yeah. And... um. This uh, this basically started Entombed, and Johnny Hedlund formed Unleashed Two very in 1989. Enjoyable bands. I almost wore my Unleashed shirt for this recording. Oh, yeah? Yeah. 
So that was Nihilist, basically. And from there... Oh, hold on. You will you will hear us turning pages. We have a lot of notes. Guys. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna run through some of the Swedish stuff real quick. Do it. Okay. So let's start with um, us in a small suburb in Stockholm, 1988. Uh, Johan Edlund started a group called Treblinka, which was after a Nazi <laughs> camp in Poland that killed 870,000 Jews. That is in World very War II. sad. So um, they felt bad about that, changed the name to Timet. Uh, and this is one of the bands that Nick showed the Morbid Angel and was like, this is the thing, guys, come on. Um, but Timet actually became more black metal. Uh, they, they felt that they weren't very good musicians. And they felt that black metal had to do more with the lyrics than the image. And they weren't so much about zombies and gore. So they just went down that rain that area but they were still friends with all the death metal guys right um next band uh band started uh off a swedish island in gotland uh started as corpse with jorgen sandstrom in 1986 uh with guitarist ola lindgren <laughs> and drummer jensa paulson yeah and the they found it hard to keep the lineup intact, which is fucking typical for every single band. They somehow break up, reform, break up, reform. And uh, this one, it's like <laughs> they kicked out the bassist by not telling them that they had a gig and changing the name to what everyone now knows as Grave, which they actually released an album lately. But yeah, they just said... Okay, let's not tell them and re rename the band, and then <laughs> yeah. that's how they get rid of their bases. It's just like a bunch of like young young people being like not knowing how to like handle difficult situations. You yeah. Know? yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So they they did a six hour ferry ride over to Stockholm to a record store, put five copies of their corpse, five, ten copies of their Greg or grave uh, demos, and fucking Nick Anderson grabs them up and distributes them and basically is like friends of the band even though they're on a fucking island off the coast of stockholm it's so fucking weird um another small band uh is grotesque from gothenburg sweden and they basically started playing bathory covers in 1989 recorded a five song uh demo called embrace the evil Again, recorded in Sunlight Studios, um, and they're they broke up. I don't. They're not around anymore. But I def their demo is around. You're definitely able to still get the demo, but still influential for the the Swedish scene. And I think especially the Gothenburg scene, which I didn't write down, but I I think grotesque is a little bit more melodic. Is that correct, or um, am I thinking of a different band? Like, what band started the whole Gothenburg, death metal and flames, dark tranquility sort of sound? I want to say it was At The Gates, dude. Yeah. Yes. Um, I want to say At The Gates kind of was one of the first okay. people. <clears throat> I'm not sure. I know Carnage is more melodic, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, the early stuff, 
like early Dark Tranquility at the gates, I think was really influential with getting like the Gothenburg sound going. Yeah. And then in terms of the melody, then I think like then it was Dark Tranquility and like In Flames and yeah. And yeah. Then, that, then that kind of stuff came in. But um, I'm honestly not that well versed in Grotesque. Yeah, I, I listened to it a little bit and I remember it being death metal just straight up but i'm i thought there was an uh some talk about them being a little bit melodic but i think that's later i think that's uh, you might be right about that to get at the gates i think it's so, at the gates yeah. it sounds familiar um so uh and again shortly sorry for the quick overview but uh moving to other countries switzerland um uh Basically, Celtic Frost influenced uh, band everybody. Cold. Yeah, basically <laughs> yeah. everyone. <laughs> Seriously, uh, uh, band Fear God, uh, and this was still people just kids trying to play as fast as shit. So they just wanted to be twenty to thirty seconds burst of music, twice as political as Napalm <laughs> Death. Just fucking go for it. Uh, so basically like, you know, something easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, they released a self-titled seven inch record in 1988 and then ended. And I found out the reason why was because they played with Hen Henry Rollins yeah. in 88. And basically they didn't give him any time to, uh, do a sound check. They didn't give them any, or they turned down their PA and kind of fucked them and they didn't they didn't want to be involved with the whole rock and roll scene of just people being too cool even for the younger acts so yeah they, they ended it right there yeah and they were talking about like um how henry really seemed it seemed to be like more about an image than like an actual like statement and it was basically like yeah we basically saw firsthand that like it was a facade yeah. like the movement to us became a facade and no longer meant anything and we didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Yeah. And they decided like what, I think either right before they started playing or right on stage, they were, I think on stage, like they were like, yeah, we're, we're yeah, we're breaking up after this gig. Like this is all bullshit. And Henry, you know, fuck, fuck this guy. And yeah. And fuck this scene. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Kind of thing. Yeah. Cause they, I mean, they had their message, <clears throat> right? Yeah. They had their cause and it was basically just, think they were sp spit in their face that's sad like what if they would have opened up for like you know discharge or something like that and yeah maybe maybe everything would have been different yeah yeah i wonder how they even got the henry rollins gig that's like i feel like that's really... that wasn't even explained was it no it wasn't yeah it was just really young and like hey these like cool guys here's this cool club some networking boom and then it was like Oh no! <laughs> yeah. Hey, we're gonna fuck <laughs> you over. Okay. Awesome. Um, oh, discharge. Uh, by the way, guys, uh, listeners, today, discharge signed with uh, Nuclear Blast, which is, which is so random because I've been like we've been talking about yeah. him and thinking about him so much, especially yeah. doing this and like extreme noise terror. Yeah, yeah. Like all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like a cool uh, like live music video um, of them. Uh, so check it out, yeah. Um, and to, I guess to move on, uh, other place in Europe, Austria, Alex Wank, 
Disharmonic Orchestra in 1987. And he went to go on to a band called Pungent Stench. And I actually found out about this band a little while ago when I was at some some place, some uh, lo- uh, public event in Oakland, and I saw this guy with this shirt, and it said Pungent Stench on it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to look up that band. And it was it's their first album that I can find, and it's the name of the album is Been Caught Buttering. and um basically they said whatever they have they whatever they write the lyrics have to be hilarious for themselves like they have to laugh in some instance to make the song real and i i find that funny and i've always wanted to like i listened to a little bit of it but i didn't really get into it but i always wanted to read the lyrics (laughs) Um, we'll and, have to do a bonus episode where all we do is read pungent stench lyrics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Note to self. Yeah. Uh, and I think lastly, we come to communist Poland in uh, the early 1980s. And this was kind of, uh, it felt like a true emergence Yeah. of metal because it was, um, I mean, tape trading had to be underground, like, you know, had to be smuggled into the country um, behind the Iron Curtain at that time. And uh, Peter of the now uh, Vader uh, had stories of traveling hours to go look at a shitty VHS tape or whatever it was on um, of three live Slayer tracks. Could you imagine that? Like, like yeah, and like guys like crowding around to watch this like fucked up TV play these like couple tracks, fucking black and white probably. You're like, holy shit. Yeah, and it wasn't even like on a tape, right? It was like some sort of broadcast that somebody was somehow picking up. Like, hours oh, was away. it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't think it was even on a tape. Um, it's well, I think it said from a videotape. Oh, was it on a video? Yeah. Oh, my bad on that one. But. Yeah, I mean that's it's fucking crazy, and would I, he would have to travel hours to even like do the tape trading with whatever was available, because it wasn't allowed in the country. But um, yeah, that dude, Peter, formed Vader in 1983, and he called it's it a good year. He called it thrash black. It wasn't technically death metal, but it definitely started up the scene there. Um, other bands that kind of came out from that scene was uh Crabathor, which I didn't even know about until I read this book and it's it's pretty fucking good. Alright. Like surpri- yeah, I was yeah. Uh Merciless Death, Imperator, Slashing Death, and Dragon. Those are other bands that kind of formed early and helped form the scene. Merciless Death kicks ass. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to check out Crabathor. I haven't listened to any Crabathor yeah. either. <clears throat> no. I'm glad that you I'm glad that you are uh, spearheading that operation. <laughs> um so uh we could talk about Carnage right now or why don't you talk about Carnage and then we'll backtrack and I'll get into this other stuff. Uh so Carnage was is back in Sweden with uh I feel like the well known in the metal scene, Michael Amott. Yeah. Uh, 1988. Um, Amot was already in a band, but was 
basically i i was totally death metal at the time when he was in a hardcore band so he wasn't into into the band and formed his own band and he sounds like like an og like he fucking made master t-shirts fucking repulsion badges like all bootleg shit for himself because he was totally death metal (laughs) (laughs) uh recruited some guys um for his band and recorded his first demo uh the day man lost in early 1989 which doesn't that fucking sound so pretentious as a as a title (laughs) the day man lost (laughs) day man (laughs) talking about night man champion of the sun (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? Okay. Um, yeah, that is a pretty pretentious. I mean, that's sort of. Michael kind of came off as sort of pretentious, I think, around this period to me. Mm-hmm. Just like in general. Um, but did you want to talk more about that? And then I'll get into more about what I'm saying. Um, yeah. So uh, basically, they, they record or they had some more melody in their band. Um, Amot liked how Metallica and, Ma- and Megadeth did melody and felt like bands like Master and Repulsion, even though he loved them, were simplistic. And um, yeah, he tells a story about they didn't play many live shows, but whenever they played live, it was always to a group of people that where he they knew everyone because it was always friends. <laughs> and I'm think I'm wondering if it was like the same situation with Nick and the like the underground metal group in the tunnels. If they had the same thing, it was just like, oh yeah, everyone has their band, and then when we play live, it's like. Okay, the, this like group of people here in the left side of the room, you're coming up next, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, maybe, man. So, yeah, um, yeah. So that's a quick little ditty about Jack and Diane. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna backtrack us, <clears throat> please. Way back. What? What? Rewind. <laughs> I thought you were gonna do something else. Um. <laughs> What 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 what? Say. Uh, so I'm bringing us all the way back to Napalm Death, and uh, I we talked a lot about Napalm Death in the last podcast, but uh, it's for good reason. Um, so there's some really interesting information that there's just so much that that we couldn't get to it all in one episode. So, um. Napalm Death's first album, the A-side of Scum, was given to Digby Pearson, who, as you recall from our last episode, is the founder uh, and operator of Eric Records. The A-side of Scum was given to Digby Pearson for absolutely no money. Yeah. Um, So Justin Broderick, who was in the sort of original formulation of the band, he was like, the band is stagnating. Nobody really gives a shit. Everybody's kind of bored. And he was looking, uh, you know, to join head of David. Um, and he just decided like, we've worked on this thing. I have like the only like real copy of this thing, or like I have like, you know, a copy that I'd like to have produced. And he just like was trying to shop it around. It didn't seem like anything was going to happen with it. And so he gave it to Digby Pearson for absolutely nothing. And then he like left immediately joined head of David and like never looked back sort of thing. 
Um, now, this leaves Mick Harris with, you know, with no Nick Bullen and no Justin Broderick in the band anymore. And he was determined to keep the band going. He like had a vision for it that had developed since joining the band and probably even before then when he was showing up to their gigs. So he tried to get some other guitar players in the group. He got Shane Embury and Mitch Dickinson. And Shane originally accepted the the gig, but he chose to decline uh, after thinking about it for a few days because he didn't feel technically proficient enough to play the music. Uh, and he kind of said, like, you know, he's kind of chickened out a little bit. Right. Um, so another local, Frank Healy, was tapped to play the guitar. But over the course of a few months, this version of the band was still only able to play like two or three gigs. So not too good. Uh, luckily enough, though, one of these gigs was at the Mermaid in front of Bill Steer and Jeff Walker, who should sound like familiar names to you guys because Carcass. Yes. So, and and th- this is really why part of why I wanted to come back to this is because to talk about Carcass, we need to talk about this. So Jeff was um, was sort of singing for electro hippies at the time, um, and thinking back to that night, Bill Steer said. Uh, it was hysterical. They played this gig, and of course, they didn't have a singer. The guy kept getting up and doing a little bit of vocal here and there, but it just wasn't coming through the PA. It was in shambles. But it was fun because <laughs> I got a kick out of watching people play that fast. I just, it's so funny. I actually laugh a little bit because, like, I've seen that fucking happen before. Just the guy gets on stage, and there's just nothing coming through <laughs> that fucking PA. I, um, and I love the, it's almost like a childish, like, fascination with it like oh my god oh my god they're playing so fast yeah like, it's, it's awesome it's like I, I can't even hear what the fuck he's saying but anyways yeah so that night bill approached um mick and was like hey um if you guys are looking for a steady guitar player um you know I, I, mean, can, I, can, I can join you guys and what's interesting is I didn't even uh, see any quotes from him talking about really the guitar playing too much, mm-hmm. but I mean, he must have understood from watching that like something was amiss or like had noticed that they weren't playing as often. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Bill was accepted and Mick would actually travel to Bill's parents' house and the two would play there. And this would take a few hours. Like, uh, Mick would have to travel by bus to, to a different city where Bill lived. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is at this time, Mick bought a, like a guitar and he only put like the E and A string on it. Yeah, he ripped off all the other ones. Yeah. yeah. It just like, let's just uncomplicate this. And he yeah. bought like a distortion pedal and he tuned the E and A string so that he could just like make a bar chord by just putting his finger anywhere. Right. And he was like, yeah, and then I taught myself how to play guitar with Bill. With two strings. Yeah, with two strings. So they would go and they would just like jam at Bill's parents' house. So... um the group existed, but they were so spread out at this point geographically that even though Mick was traveling to go right with Bill, like Bill said that he doubted that he couldn't really remember any gigs that they played during this time period. It was like all writing and like mm-hmm. playing and stuff. Um, and at this time, I think Bill's only like 15 or something at this time. Um, yeah, so... The culmination, though, of all of this is that they went into the studio having all separately, like, worked on stuff, but having never really been able to rehearse together outside of, like, yeah, you had Mick and Bill, but then you also had, like, the vocalist Lee Dorian, who had never, like, even sang the stuff over it really being played live before, and they go into a studio, and... 
fucking everybody records everything in one night with Mick like telling Lee when he's supposed to come in and sing over the track. And that one night having like no rehearsals is the B side of scum. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So scum is an A side and a B side with two different right. um, uh, groups of people playing on it. Really? Anyways, and so that was in 1987. Yeah, 1987, side A and B were released by Earache Records, which leads us to an unsung hero on this podcast so far till now, John Peel. Ah, yes. Yes. So John Peel in 1987 got a hold of Napalm's first album and decided to play it on air. And by the way, John Peel was the DJ for BBC Radio 1. And he was there since 1965. The the facts of like how old John Peel was at the time, like he was in like his late 50s or something, right? Yeah. And like the prominence that he had and what he started choosing to fucking play. Yeah. Because basically like he ushered in some of the, a lot of the, the musical eras like there was like new wave that that happened and that was partially due to him and um punk as well in in England and he he basically just like looked up new music and continued to try to find little niches and champion those things which is cool because most things these days or most uh, DJs these days just kind of flavor of the flavor of the week yeah yeah and like what can i mash up right and here's an older guy who probably enjoys his certain type of music saying no i'm gonna step outside the box yeah he's like a like when i think of him i'm like dude he's like the sherpa of music (laughs) yeah i mean that's essentially what it is so like he he brings a great force with him with whatever he plays on the air yeah um yeah so uh john peel's fucking awesome so basically though in 1987 he gets a hold of napalm death's first uh album scum and he he's like all right i'll play this on air and from the sounds of the story he hadn't even it didn't sound like he had really listened to it before like he'd somehow had gotten a hold of it so the first track he plays is you suffer and it's like it's only like a second or a second and a half uh, yeah, long. It's not... um, <laughs> so he played it and then there's like a pause and he goes he goes, No, that can't be right. And so he played it two more fucking times to make sure that he had it live on the air. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then he was like, Okay, I'll play something else. And then he played the kill. And after playing that track twice, he said I have to play some more of that tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever happened, he was like, "All right, I this is whatever's happening here is fucking cool." He he enjoyed it. So Justin Broderick and his band, uh, head of David, they had actually just done, uh, like a uh, a John Peel session not that like long ago. So they were all sort of listening to John Peel that night, anyways. Right. right. Yeah. And then he he's listening and he he goes, "Wait a minute." Are they? They're playing Napalm Death, and he's hearing the kill, which is the song that he, he wrote. wrote. <laughs> and he so so he said, "This is a quote." He goes, "We sat there in absolute disbelief, like fucking John Peel is playing Napalm Death. What if Napalm Death becomes popular?" 
fucked up, man. <laughs> um, and to to have that thought in that band, and then at the same time to be like, I gave away the first half of that album for fucking free. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And by the way, so after the B side was finished of Scum, mm-hmm. um, Earache pressed two thousand copies of it. So there wow. are two thousand copies out there, ready to be purchased. And I actually, I think Mick picked up the first five or something hot off the press. Probably just and like just like gave it to friends and stuff. But I bet you kept one for himself. Oh too. yeah. Um. So, so. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so, were you going to talk about the Napalm Death Peel sessions at all? I was just going to mention it. That, why don't you go ahead? Yeah. So, so Napalm Death was on. Um, the one of the peel sessions in september 13th 1987 and when they were on earache immediately had to press more <laughs> scum records um and i don't have the number for it but i think it was in the thousands i want to say it was like another six thousand or something like that um but yeah at, the, at that point that sort of boosted earache a little bit and and digby was like well we have to be fucking creating more shit because there's something here yeah yeah and um the the cool thing i just want to say again like because john was playing napalm death it really established like in that moment that this was a genre that could be taken seriously Mm mm-hmm I mean, Napalm Death was was treated as a novelty for like the Scum album and also for the the album that followed Scum, um, because of how fast they were playing. Like people were like, "Oh my god, this band plays so fast! You got to buy the album and like check the shit out. It's wild how fast these guys play." Yeah. Um, you know, and so there was an aspect of that there. And their next album sold like what twenty thousand copies or something something big for for what it was for getting started. Um. But I mean, this was really the start of people also sort of taking it seriously, though, you know, yeah, Uh, because John was taking it seriously. But uh, to get back to Digby, uh, so uh, Digby Pearson, we should talk about how we started Earache Records. So Earache Records was actually started because Digby didn't feel like going to the unemployment office. (laughs) Yes. He didn't want to go down to the unemployment office to to pick up his unemployment check and check in with them. And he realized that there was like this loophole with unemployment, which is that like, it's not technically unemployment, but if you start a business, the state sends you like a stipend for the business. Yeah. That's basically the same deal. And it's like to kind of help you stabilize while the business is starting. Yeah. Um, Which as an American, I read that and I was like, that sounds wonderful. Why don't we do that? But, um, Anyway, so he was like, why don't I just do that? And then I don't have to go down to the unemployment office anymore to get my money. Yeah. So he did that. But this is really cool. This meant that he was able to sort of spend the first year of the business instead of like actively trying to like sign everybody and then like hobble out and not really be prepared. He was able to research. Mm -hmm. And so he researched like how you use a record label and like, who prints records and how do they get distributed and put in the store so people can buy them. And like, you know, and he was already like, you know, 
knee deep in both the punk scene and the you know the burgeoning grind core scene because of napalm death which turned into like a huge connection with the death metal scene because mick harris was like yo you gotta sign like all these people you know like like uh uh morbid angel and fucking people like that mick was like always feeding him like you know, you gotta get carcass on the label. yeah um yeah so uh but I think it's just it's just a, important to to realize that like yeah Digby pressed this stuff and he did like the two thousand copies, but his business yeah his business it was out of his off. room yeah it was out of his it was, it was it was out of his room yeah it's just crazy when you think about it. so yeah that that was basically the start of it was Napalm Death yeah and then he signed things like uh, uh, Concrete Socks Heresy those were two other bands that he was like uh, you know when he was like I gotta get something going Those yeah are, yeah boom i like i like the uh the first heresy album it's fucking awesome um so <clears throat> but that's just a little backstory for earache and and digby uh just to flesh him out a little bit more for you guys i want to get moving on with bill steer a little bit more so carcass was started in 1985 with the 15 year old bill steer and drummer ken owen who was also 15 Bill had said that uh, Carcass was a name that he came up with um, after a year. It uh, was a name that he came up with, and that after a year, uh, the group disbanded, and he just started playing with like a punk band. And uh, at this time, it was like early 1987, and Jeff Walker uh, had just been like kicked out of the Electro Hippies, and so the way he was kicked out was kind of fucked up. Um, it was almost sort of like a uh, Dave Mustaine situation. Although sans alcohol, but they were just like driving somewhere. So Walker said, we did a gig up north in Lancashire and we were driving back and they just dropped me off out there in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and that was like, they were like, get the fuck out basically in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> they know that's so, <laughs> so, so fucked up. Um, and he also, he was quoted as saying they did, they did him a favor. Ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but Bill said, quote, then Jeff, uh, Jeff then drifted into our band. Then I pursued the rest of the group. Uh, then I persuaded the rest of the group to change their name to Carcass. And once Jeff was on board, I felt like there was a kindred spirit there. And he just said, come on, if it's not going to happen, uh, come on, it's not going to happen with these guys. If you're listening to Master of Repulsion, it's not really going to sound like that because they don't play that way. Mm-hmm. So at this point in 1987, Ken Owen was tapped again to sort of come back in and play drums. And the only reason why he hadn't been tapped sooner <laughs> yeah. is because the fucking guy didn't actually own a drum kit. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> what the fuck did he play? That's what I've been wondering this whole fucking time. I'm like, what were, were they playing at school instruments? Maybe, maybe that's what Pot- it was. Maybe like a friend's house or something. Fucking playing death metal on bongos. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so Ken finally uh, saved up the money and got a drum kit. Thank God. <laughs> uh and uh yeah i mean they started writing music and the thing was is like you know bill was was working on some lyrics and stuff and ken i think was working on some lyrics and jeff just fucking hated the lyric direction of the band that was coming up yeah and he he really didn't enjoy it until he was reading through some of them and he realized like wait a minute like this isn't serious. It's like it's not supposed to be taken seriously. This is like it's really tongue in cheek. It's really funny. Like this is over the top. Yeah, he was saying he was quote unquote up his own ass about it. 
Like he was he was actually bummed out because like he couldn't like find the motivation. Yeah, to he write was lyrics. like, "What are we even talking about here? Like cutting people? Like what is happening?" Here, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, but then he realized, like, wait a minute, I'm taking this shit way too fucking seriously. This should be like hilarious. So I'm gonna do like the most over the top, gory fucking stuff ever. Um, although I do think that some of the pretentiousness is still there. So, like some of the some carcass lyrics, like from Heartwork and stuff, I'm like, what the fuck does that word even mean? Yeah. I gotta, like, have a dictionary in some of it. Um, <laughs> that might be a regional thing too, since we're not from the UK. But, um, anyways, then he his big sister happened to be studying to become a nurse, so he just swiped her medical book and started like looking up words and procedures and all that stuff and yep. probably what is unsafe and just put that stuff into it's just like the coolest serendipity but the funny thing is is that yeah he's trying to be over the top but because he's using like these scientific words and yeah and like stuff coming from this textbook it gave them a lot of fucking credibility yeah it was like uh more professional yeah. in a way and i wonder if he still has the same book because I mean, he just gave it back to his sister. Yeah, like if we're making fucking music off this thing, <laughs> this buy a new one. because I mean, they st <laughs> they still have those the same lyrics nowadays. Yeah. So yeah. I I just don't know if uh, he has the same book. Maybe, or I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. So, um, anyways, the the lyrics are now over the top. They're brutal and they're anatomy based. And so in 1987, Carcass entered Rich Bitch Studios and they recorded their debut album, Reek of Putrefaction, with engineer Mike Ivory, who I think should be thought of in disdain. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like he fucked everything up, kind of, yeah. as an engineer. Because they needed to remix that album several times in order to get it to something that sounded decent. So here's something that I do want to say, though, in uh, in Mike Ivory's defense, which is that, and it's something that, that the guys in Carcass have said in interviews, which is, like, when they were first starting out, nobody was really trying to, like, make their guitars and everything sound that way or, like, play that way. And it was so new, yeah. sort of, at the time that a lot of engineers were like, I don't even know what to do with the sound. Yeah. Or, like, how, like, I don't even, there's no, like, concept of, like, oh, well the HM2 pedal should like be produced like this or, you know, when everything's turned up all the way, this is an example, they don't do that in carcass, but you know, um, so give him a little bit of credit on that. Let's put a DS one on a hi hat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was some real experimentation. I think, yeah. Happening. Um, but Mike Ivory fucked up the album really well. I mean, he just did, he didn't do a good job with it. Um, so anyways, this first album was Rico Putrefaction, which was written equally by Bill, Jeff, and Ken. And uh, the thing is, is that there was another member of the group at this time. It was like this older guy named Sanjiv, and he was like kind of an oddball. And the group, I think right before they recorded the album, was like, let's just dump this dude before we even like really get started. And so he's kind of like just a name that happens to be a fact in the podcast and that's where he will stay yeah and i think they all equally shared in the lyrical duties and the vocal duties yeah they all sing on the album yeah. um and jeff said we did the album in a day and the guy who was engineering uh really messed it up at the time we were like pretty upset to where we walked out it sounded shitty to us but that's part of the attraction 
because it sounded so raw. Yeah. And this actually ended up becoming John Peel's favorite album of <laughs> 1988. Yeah, he really enjoyed Rape wow. Putrefaction and he started playing it on the air just like he did with Napalm Death. And he also started playing stuff from Bolt Thrower, Extreme Noise Terror, and Unseen Terror. Yep. So many terrors, man. So many terrors. What about night terrors? <laughs> terrors in the night! Yeah! You know what's White weird snake. on a side note? <laughs> what? Um, uh, Bill Steer and Walker, they're both vegans. Yeah. And Ken Owens, a vegetarian. They're singing about bodies. Yeah. And they have an album like Choice Cuts. Or <laughs> Is that it? Choice Prime Cuts? Prime Choice. Cuts. Choice. Prime Cuts. Yeah. The one where it's all I the I think it's Choice yeah. Cuts. I think it's is choice it choice? Cuts. I think it's choice cuts. But um, yeah, and the point that they were getting across with with some of the lyrics, though, also it's funny because it was tongue in cheek, but part of it was also like to get the point across that um, that we are also meat, and we think of ourselves as separate from the animal kingdom, but like yeah. we're meat just like anything else that, and like thinking about that though in a way where it's like yeah, and we should respect that and like yeah. To be that's fair, why, that's why they're vegans, right? To be yeah. fair, we taste closer to pork, so we should respect the pigs. Fuck the cows, fuck the chickens. When I'm on my deathbed, <laughs> my only wish, my only desire is to be eaten. That could happen, dude. You might taste delicious. As I'm going out, just let somebody just get some enjoyment from my body. And it was delicious. Delicious. Um,. Anyway, so uh, moving on to Michael Amott, who had Carnage. Carnage. Uh, Carnage. <laughs> now we're in Florida for some reason. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, so after Napalm Death's mentally murdered EP was finished, Mick Harris continued to pursue a more death metal sound for the band. Uh, he wanted another guitarist in the lineup to compliment Bill Steer. So... In 1988, Mick turned to Michael Amott to fulfill this role. Now, uh, they already had a relationship because of tape trading, and Amott had said that back in 1987, um, Mick sent me all these tapes. Uh, Mick Harris got me into the whole death metal thing, really, and the whole tape trading thing. He introduced me to bands I'd never heard of, like Repulsion and Master, and all these kinds of demo bands, like Obituary, before they were even called Obituary. Executioner. 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 <laughs> uh, <laughs> Chopped in raw. Uh, in 88, um, 1988, Amot's kind of pseudo joined Napalm Death. So he said, <clears throat> I came back over and I learned all the songs. I went up to Bill Steer's house in Liverpool. I almost said Liverpool. <laughs> in Liverpool, his parents' house, where he was living at the time. And he was showing me all these Napalm Death tunes. And basically, Bill said, this is great. This is the window I've been waiting for. When you know the songs, you can step in, and I'm going to get out, and I'm going to focus on my other band, Carcass. I was like, whoa, that's not what I wanted. I was looking forward to playing with Bill. So he just whoa. basically he just, he just left. He was like, all right, I'm not going to play with Napalm Death. Then. Right. That's not what I signed up for. So around this time, Bill um, also asked Amot to join Carcass. So Mike said... When they asked me to join, they only had the Reek of Putrefaction album at that point, and I thought that sucked. So I was like, no, I'll just focus on my own band back home in Sweden. 
you'll be all right. This isn't going to go anywhere. And the whole thing fell apart for me. And I just went back home. I have a question. Uh-huh. Um, who played on, on Napalm Death's second album from Enslavement to Obliteration? That's Bill. Bill. I think okay. it's Bill. Because that was the album that knocked Sonic Youth from the number one position mm-hmm. in the independent charts and sold 35,000 copies. Nice. Yeah. Fuck you, Sonic Youth. Yeah. So. Um, <clears throat> Sonic Youth in Asia. Good, uh, good win for death metal. Yeah. Or I guess hardcore maybe. Grindcore. Yeah, grindcore at that point still. Um, so... In 1989, Bill Steer was out of Napalm Death. Uh, he left and he uh, produced Symphonies of Sickness. This time, he recorded at Slaughterhouse Studios, very aptly titled for a death metal band. Yes. Uh, and he, they recorded with engineer Colin Richardson. And Colin allowed Carcass to iron out their playing and produce a much better sounding album. And what's interesting is the way that Bill talked about this was like Colin really wasn't paid enough to like put in the amount of effort he did into the album. There was like, it seemed to be like a personal determination on Colin's part to be like, how the fuck do I make this sound good? Right. Yeah. Cause he, he just, he didn't want to be embarrassed. I think by it, like he had, um, I think he he put a lot of effort into it and didn't want to just like throw some shit out there and be like, oh, this guy did a shitty job, like <laughs> other engineers in the past, you know. Yeah, it se- it seemed like yeah, from what Bill was saying, Colin really went above and beyond to try and make this album sound as good as it possibly could at the time. Yeah, was he the one at the the he was asking to put on drum pads? I don't remember while that they record. Part. I don't remember right. that part. There was some band. It's like a weird <laughs> anecdote. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, anyways, so when Michael Amott heard that album, he said, quote, when I heard Symphonies of Sickness album, I was like, oh no, what have I done? So I learned from it from my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned from my mistake. And when I got asked a second time, I was just like, okay, I'm leaving Carnage and I'm gonna go do this. And this was in January of nineteen ninety. Uh, and I went over in England in a- to England in April. So, windfall for the death metal community because he leaves um, Carnage. Its drummer Fred Etsby was able to resurrect his own band, Dismember, which featured a majority of Kine- uh, Carnage's lineup. Mm-hmm. So, it's fucking awesome. I was I, I've actually been listening to quite a bit of Dismember since we started doing this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so would anybody else like to take over at this point? Uh, I have a section on Roadrunner Records. Roadrunner Records, all right. Yeah, so uh, 1989, um, Roadrunner Records was imprinting death metal albums with an RC title. I guess it was like their side label or something to put all the death metal shit on. Mm-hmm. Um, so they signed uh, Sepultura. Am I saying that right? I, I think it's know. either I've heard it Sepultura. I think that's kind of like the like an American way yeah. to say it. I think Sepultura is how it's. Yeah, that sounds more correct. Um, so they did their Beneath the Remains LP and sold a hundred thousand copies. Yeah, fucking yeah. shit. That band is highly popular. I think it, part of the deal with that was was because they were from Brazil too, right? Like there was sort of like a oh my god, there's this death metal band from like Brazil. Yeah, there, there was like this almost like exotic sort of 
thought process around it, it seemed like. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so Roadrunner Records sent out the famous, infamous, I'm not really sure, Scott Burns <laughs> out there. Um, and gave basically they had $500 oh, yeah. to spend <laughs> on recording this album. Scott Burns gets there and gets all of his tapes taken from him and some other equipment and basically like taken or stolen taken from from like the authorities Customs. Uh, yeah because basically stolen yeah yeah because they're corrupt and so they're like well give us money and we'll give it back to you so he had to spend three hundred dollars to get it back <laughs> and so that's most of their money so i think they ended up getting some more when like wired yeah. down to yeah he, he called like and he was like yeah i need money and they were like didn't you just get there and he's like yeah let me tell you the story yeah <laughs> So they end up recording. They basically record at night because it's too fucking hot in the day. It's like in the 100 degrees. So according to, to Max Cavalera, there's an angst to this um, LP because it was so hot. They were worked so hard. And um, yeah, they just they there wasn't enough time to get everything done. And it Miserable was in condition. shitty conditions. Yeah. So they got it done, except Max had to record his vocals in the apartment, I guess in Scott Burns's apartment, um, to get everything done. So, yeah, end of, yeah. Yeah, and you know what's funny? I, I, I had heard that the only reason why it was Scott Burns that did the album was because he was the only producer that would actually agree to fly to Brazil. Mm -hmm. and like leave the country to do it and everybody else was like go fuck yourself for however much money they were offering <laughs> yeah and scott was the only one who was like yeah i need money and i record death metal bands so sure why not if it sold a hundred thousand i really hope that he got like a kickback from that because I, I feel like no one was expecting like that much to be sold yeah in I don't, 1989 yeah i don't think anybody could have predicted that yeah um and then uh Roadrunner also did Executioner, which we all know as Obituary. Further, slowly we run. <laughs> and this was another, like, almost a novelty thing because people love the facts that they didn't have lyrics to the album. Mm -hmm. And John Tardy is quoted as saying that he just kind of, like, made up sounds to the album <laughs> with the... With the Whatever the musicians were playing, something so whatever just sounded good, um, and that that record sold seventy five thousand copies. Um, yeah, and I think one of the Roadrunner guys was saying that everyone's kind of sick of the shitty low quality Bay Area thrash metal stuff, um, so it lost its edge. So so death metal. Uh, took its place a little bit not fully i mean fucking thrash metal was still being pumped out but yeah last time i checked metallica is the biggest selling metal band on the planet so. yeah exactly so yeah it but didn't i mean i don't know if i would still call them thrash anymore but no yeah. but what time was that 1990s so there's just something i'm gonna slip in casually right now yeah. which okay. is that monty Con connor who was an executive at roadrunner um, says a lot of stuff like that in in the 
research that we did. Yes. Like, like say like, oh yeah, that was getting stale or like, oh yeah, these guys weren't performing. So we dropped them. And he comes across as sounding like a fucking idiot. Like most of the time. Tell us how you really feel. That's not, I mean, like I could be totally wrong. I didn't run a record company or was right. an executive. He was, but he sounds like a fucking idiot. Like, yeah, Thrasher's getting stale. So we're doing, and it's like, well, actually like, yeah, Metallica, Megadeth, like those are thrash bands and they were the most popular metal bands on the planet at the time and probably still are today in terms Slayer's, of Slayer's I guess Slayer's part yeah, of that too. Slayer too. Yeah. You know, so it just comes across as like ignorant and like having this fucking chip on his shoulder kind of yeah. thing. And then he also talks about like during the downfall of uh, of what he would consider the downfall of death metal. He's like, "Yeah, we signed a bunch of bands that we shouldn't have, you know, that couldn't perform like Gorguts." And it's like, "Are you really talking shit about Gorguts, dude?" Like Gorguts are one of the fucking godfathers of the entire movement. They are so influential. Yeah. I th- well, I think mainly say, like the technical movement. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And you're going to say like, it's obvious to me that you as an executive had no fucking idea how to promote a band like Gorguts. And so you drop them and you blame the band for like for being dropped and also for like problems with the movement. And it's obviously them. I think yeah. it's a, there's a reason why he's an executive. Yeah. So <laughs> that's my, it's a, it's very casual. Actually. Yeah. It's casual. I am getting worked up a little bit though. I can feel it. Yeah. But yeah. So any, uh, almost anything that's going to be like, and then the people at Roadrunner said this, just imagine if I don't say it, that I'm like, that guy's a fucking idiot. So that's my two cents. Yeah. But I mean, that in itself, he's not signing death metal bands because, you know, he feels he doesn't need to, but he's contributing to the problem he's saying exists. Yeah, I mean, and he's talking about everything like in terms of money and shit like that and like markets. And it's like, well, that's why you guys weren't able to sell it because you don't care about it on a personal level. So you don't even know how to fuck to talk about it or promote it if you don't care about it, which is why... Like, I mean, yeah, Eric, I think, I think everything really sales started dropping off, but I mean, you look, these guys, all these labels are still happening today and you had other ones pop up since then. And the movement is still happening. Yeah. So there, there's a bit of a disconnect. Well, there's also a rush to get like the first platinum death metal album. So they, they were just signing bands and hopefully like luck of the draw, we got a good one. You know, we got the one that'll like bank out they flooded the fucking market that's oh, what yeah. they did and then then how do you even find what the good stuff is if the market is flooded yeah, yeah. anyways it, it irritates me and and uh one thing that i was saying before this park podcast started w- was that i actually don't really have a very negative opinion of roadrunner records right now but it's funny because i realized that i had completely like forgotten how much i did not like roadrunner records like when I was a teenager. Yeah, I remember those days. Yeah, and how I just really fucking hated them as a record label. I hated every funny I hated fucking everybody that they signed. I didn't like any of that shit. And it's like reading this and then reading stuff that he would say, I was like, oh my God. I forgot how much I used to fucking hate this record label. Yeah. Um, even though yeah, obituary, uh, I'm really happy that that happened and Gorguts happened, you know, early on and stuff. But it's like as you're wearing a Gorgat shirt. I am wearing yeah. a Gorgat shirt, which is very on um, purpose for this. <laughs> I was wearing it during King Diamond. Yeah, I noticed that. Man. Yeah. I fucking wish that. Anyways, but yeah, so it's interesting. It kind of has made me feel 
like I'm a teenager again, like being like, fuck Roadrunner Records. <laughs> and that's how I feel about that. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Um, so some other things, uh, Earache signed Morbid Angel, Entombed. Um, well, I mean, of course, Napalm Death was there. <laughs> but uh, there's a funny story about Morbid Angel and David Vincent basically wanting to get a record deal and calling up all the record labels and they'll be like hey so what do you think and then they're like oh well you know there's already too many bands with angel at the end you know like death angel etc so if you drop the angel you know maybe we'll sign you it just says fuck you hangs up <laughs> next, <Click. laughs> next label Hey, um, I think you guys need to like slow down or have melodic vocals or click Fuck you. <laughs> so yeah, he was just uh, calling around trying to hopefully get picked up, and then Mick Harris with Napalm Death lets Digby Pearson know, like, dude, you got to fucking sign these guys, and so they get picked up. Yeah, and Mick, it seemed like Mick, and also once Morbid Angel was on Earache, David Vincent and the Morbid Angel guys. Those those guys really informed Digby a lot also mm-hmm. on who to sign. They were like, you got to sign these guys. You got to like listen to these guys. And it seemed like most of the time Digby was like, yes, whatever you say, I believe. And like yeah. would listen to it and be like, yep, let's sign them. And then so it was like this. It was so interesting because it's like this total grassroots movement, but that had like an actual outlet and somebody that would really listen to them and take them seriously. Yeah. And I think it was important that not only did, were they like gods of the death metal scene, they were also fans of it too. Yeah. And so it kind of fueled itself in a way. And you know, it's and that's actually what led to the, um, the material of massacre that's out there is because Mick was like, Hey, like massacre is a thing and then digby reached out and realized like oh the band is splintered and basically was like how much money is it going to take to get you guys to record something <laughs> yeah. you know because some of them were in death at the time touring i think actually in the uk and rick Roz had just been kicked out of a band because he's rick Roz. and um, <laughs> i don't know how he is nowadays but he seemed to be difficult to get along with he always seems to be difficult um but yeah, so they released an album and then promptly broke up again. But it's just like, yeah, you know, these guys, were, it's, yeah, they were fans and they were in control of what got released. And I think that's really part of the magic, to get back to my distaste of Roadrunner, of why Earache and the scene really took off is because you had like people that actually cared about it. Yeah. Because they were passionate. Part, yeah, taking part in, in what's coming out and what should be taken seriously, yeah. you know. Roadrunner was looking at it from a business perspective. Yeah. Which is which is really fucking irritating. And Eric was taking it from a fan perspective. Yeah. Although I mean, yeah, obviously Digby wanted to make some coin, but Right, yeah. but I mean, you gotta mm-hmm. you gotta go where everybody else is like, this is the shit. Yeah, for sure. Um so should we move to the fall demon? Um of the fall. I would say go for it, because I don't I don't have anything for it yet. Do it, man. Okay. Corporate buy-in time. In 1991, Morbid Angel got signed to a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, even though they were still on Earache. Uh, uh, so this subsidiary subsidiary was called Giant Records. And um, I think David Vincent was actually quoted as saying that the actual negotiations took 10 minutes. 
They were done at an ice cream store in California. <laughs> ice cream. Who <laughs> 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 want their titties sucked? Ice, ice cream. cream. Uh, what is it? French vanilla, butter pecan, chocolate, chocolate deluxe. deluxe. Even caramel sundaes is getting get touched. touched. Yeah. All right. Um, so, but the manager at the time was on the phone and he was like talking with the record label guys and he goes, you guys are not allowed in the studio when they're making the record and you're not allowed to call them. And if I find out you did, I'm going to fly out there. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. This was the manager that said, yeah. That, right? yeah. Yeah. And this is like, who's going to manage the band. And so it's like best possible situation. Yeah. You know? More, yeah, Morbid Angel had a really good manager and I can't remember his name right now. Was I this some either. German guy, like something... I feel bad. Uh, I feel bad because I maybe. totally like. I was like, "What is this guy's name?" And I just couldn't. Yeah. Um. Anyways. Yeah, and then you had like other people coming around. I think we touched on this a little bit in the last um, podcast, but like Metal Blade had a had like a deal mm-hmm. um, with I want to say it was Sony, and you know, Roadrunner didn't really need a deal. Roadrunner was pretty huge. Um, but you, you had these guys sort of hooking up with these corporate deals to get major releases in America instead of just the UK, uh, with, uh, earache. Um, but unfortunately there was a bit of a fall from grace. So while domination sold like, you know, which is a great record for morbid angel sold, uh, like 200,000 copies or so on giant records. A lot of the other bands that were signed to giant records through earache did not fair as well um and some of them were even dropped from from their record deals uh or some of them honestly weren't even included like bolt thrower wasn't even included uh in those early deals um but in september 1995 um the american the north american distribution deal with earache fell through and um was terminated and so when this happened uh digby pearson said quote I was deflated. We'd only known success as a label. Then you reach a major label and you expect to go gold or platinum. Maybe unrealistic expectations, but we were having them. But it didn't happen, and the bands were dropped. Yet at the same time, I was getting bored with death metal, to be honest. I was looking for something more exciting. And so this is when he starts like looking at house music and techno a little bit. Yeah. Um, so... Part of what led to the demise of death metal was the sort of, like as we've been saying, the indiscriminate signing of any band with a demo that sent one to a label back in the early 90s. It's like it, oversaturation of the market. Oh, yeah. And as a consumer, somebody who actually wants to try and get into it, I mean, when there's that many bands around, it's like, where do you start? And if so many are like really unvetted and maybe like not very good, then the whole scene loses its luster and sort of becomes like, what yeah. is this? You know, it'd be really cool to see a graph of that. Why don't you make one? Dude, just looking up this stuff on the internet, trying to just get, there's so many perspectives. Yeah, there's a lot of opinions. You literally have to go through every band to get a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, that's true. And everybody's interconnected. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. dude. Yeah. It's such an incestuous scene. Yeah, and they start and stop so many times. And oh my God. It's pretty amazing they, that the scene happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyways, yeah, so there just wasn't a lot of differentiation between all these bands. Um, and a huge problem that happened was that you had these new bands coming out, releasing like their first album, and then 
you had these seminal bands that have been around forever not getting any fucking recognition mm-hmm. because of the flooding. And so people coming in had, you know, they don't know who the fucking tombed is or, you know, even like somebody totally green napalm death or, or any of these people. And they're coming in and they're listening to like, I don't even know some sort of shitty death metal band. I, I don't, I don't. Can you guys think of a shitty death metal band off the top of your head? I only listen to the good ones. Um, I feel like there's got to be a bad one out there. We could, anyways, I can't think of a bad death metal band right now. But um, uh, oh no, Nile. <laughs> no, uh, Nile's a good band. Um, Nile. anyways, what's that? I was gonna say Nile's actually sort of responsible for the resurrection a little bit. Yep. Yeah. But we'll get to that well, later. Next, next episode. Yeah. There, I think there's also, um, with several bands, they actually started to like sort of lighten up a little bit. And this comes from like Carcass's yeah. Swan Song. And, and I can't think of any others right now. But, and it's, it has nothing to do with the record labels well, themselves. Even like, even like the changing though was even like with Napalm Death. Like because they yeah. were moving from the grindcore to the like the more death metal, and they went and they recorded with uh, uh, um, the fuck, dude, the guy we've been talking about him. Um, you recorded Sepultura. Yeah, Max Cavalera. No, dude, the producer. Oh, Scott Burns. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, they went and they recorded with Scott Burns. So like there was like a really big shift in and sound happening across because everybody's also getting older too. They're not 15, 16 year old kids anymore. Yeah. yeah. Now they're starting to be like 18 to twenties and stuff. And or even like mid twenties. Yeah. Their yeah. tastes are changing. Yeah. And you know, Scott Burns was saying, um, part of the problem was that he thinks that like these bands were coming in and recording albums and he didn't hear like a huge shift over the course of time with some of them. Um, with regards to like their ability or like the songwriting style, he'd be like, you you could listen to the first album and like listen to like two albums later, and it would be like, like is this what album is this? You know, yeah. Like there wasn't a huge change with some of them, and I think that that goes with some of the flooding in the field. That's those are the unvetted bands. Yeah, probably. and it, a lot of bands are influenced by the same bands, and yeah. so they end up sounding alike. And another thing with Scott Burns is that a lot of some people blamed Scott for fucking up the scene in a way because it all sounded the same. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're Scott Burns, someone who's just like, hey, record all these death metal bands with no budget and no time, in his defense, he went to, you know, using tricks. Like, that's what you have to do. Like, I have this amount of time. I know this works. Let's do this. He'll get a decent sound instead of trying to reinvent himself over and over again. And yeah. that would be hard, very difficult when you have a flooding. Yeah. And by the way, I don't want to be too harsh on Scott because, yeah, Scott has a sound, but every producer has a sound. Yeah. It's true. Like but, when I listen to a Peter Tagrin produced album, you don't even got to fucking tell me he produced it. I'll tell you he produced it once I hear like a minute of it. Like, oh, Peter, Peter produced this. He's very particular about the way he makes shit sound. Yeah. And so part of that issue is is also with the labels overusing somebody. Exactly. You know. Yeah. They could they they had their their one trick pony. Like you make things sellable, I'll just go to you. You did leprosy in Sepultura. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I mean back back to the the 
death metal bands changing their sound and like becoming like lighter or whatever, maybe the bands become wanting to be a little bit more sophisticated is the fact that, um, oh fuck, did I lose my point on this? Uh, shit. Oh yeah. No record executives didn't have anything to do with that. There was no one in the studio being like, mm, "You guys don't have a single. Like, mm, uh, we can't do this record. Like, you need to do a single." No one was saying that to them. It just sort of happened. Yeah. So, and it happened. I think a lot of it at once, and that that kind of helped fuel the downfall. Demon at the fall. Yeah. And the fall was. 1995 to 97 yeah basically yeah and uh in 1995 monty connor wrote a runner so take that for what it's worth <laughs> 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 yeah I, I trust him because he probably cares more about this um than me but in 95 he said that deicide entombed and obituary were selling 30 to 40 percent of what they were selling years earlier mm-hmm. so there was a drop off in the market which Again, as we've been sort of being a dead horse here, is his fault. <laughs> Dang, and not other, just and him. shots fired. Yeah. Other fucking record executives' yeah. fault. Shots for, fired for not knowing, really. But I mean, you know, I don't want to like demonize him too much. But yeah, yeah I mean, for signing so many fucking bands that didn't need yeah. to be signed, and oh, you know what? As a quick anecdote, um, never mind. Fuck it. It's just not going to be in. <laughs> In 1995, uh, Scott Burns decided to leave Morris Sound Studios, and he went to college to pursue a degree focusing on computer programming. No, it ended because he left Morris Sound. That's oh, why that, Death Metal is that died. Why Scott Burns is the unsung <laughs> hero? <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. Um, yeah, and that's those are where my notes leave off. Yeah. Trail off. Yeah, they trail off. That's probably more accurate. Is that it for this thing? I think so. I think it's a good place to end it. Yeah. it's uh, It makes me feel sad we're ending in such a dark place. Scott Burns is leaving. Well, it's a good place because... Gorgut's got canned from Roadrunner by Monty. As you can tell, we have a love for the, yeah. the Gorguts. I also just really like being rude to this guy. I've never <laughs> met him. He could, he could be so nice. I'm just being rude. Yeah. Just, you just should know. just try to interview him. Well, yeah. Maybe we should. We'll have him listen to this first. He might be upset with me. Um, <laughs> He'll probably make me look real stupid. Real fast. Yeah, that'll probably happen. <laughs> uh, I think this is a good place to end it because we're going to talk about the resurrection next. Yes, and and we're not talking about Christ. It happened three years later. <laughs> <laughs> Some people have been waiting for 2,000 years, man. The resurrection of death metal? Of Christ. Damn. Carl Sanders. Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders. Son. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, wow. What's There's that song, Sacrificed Unto... Uh, sacrificed unto Sebek. Fucking love that song. Uh. Sebek. I'm trying to find a song right now. I like the, but it's gonna take me too long. Let's just sign off and we can listen to that. Yeah. Okay. Hope you enjoyed it, everyone. 
yeah, there will be a lot more to come. Um, this is Martin. This is Matt. And this is Dino. Go listen to some fucking death metal. Yeah. <laughs>